Y'all hear me? There we go. Good morning. To see everybody. If you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's good to be back. I missed y'all last week. Missed being here. But uh, appreciate Danny for bringing such a powerful word that he did last Sunday. Um, Got to listen to it and it was good. And uh, a lot of some of what he was saying in that kind of bleeds over into what Lord's laid on my heart this morning too. And it's uh, God's trying to say something, folks, um, especially when he's got two things to say back to back like that. We, we probably ought to pay attention because he's trying to get us to, to get something, to understand something. So I pray that we do get it this morning. First Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to be reading verse 9 through 11. So let's stand together in honor of God's word. Paul is writing and he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, I mean, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you are sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for another, another truth, another treasure of what we can find in you. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be so strong in this place. God, that it would just vanquish and, and get rid of any other spirit that would be in opposition to your truth that would come from the pits of hell and try to distract us and block our ears from hearing truth, block our spiritual eyes from seeing you for who you are. Lord, I pray that Satan and his minions will not win in this place today, but you will. Lord, would you let freedom just reign in this place? Would you let there just be a release and not something just bound up to where it's, it's hard to see you or to hear you? So, God, I'm calling on you to show up and do what only you can do. Jesus, be glorified. In your name we pray. Amen. We've been about three months now in this series of messages that was born from something that I did on Easter Sunday when I read off just one truth after another about what it means to be in Christ. And uh, everything I read that day was straight from Scripture. And so ever since then, we've been going back through each one of those truths and looking at them in more depth. And I hope that by now you're starting to realize something. I hope you're really beginning to feel the weight of what it means to belong to Jesus. I hope you're starting to understand that being a Christian means so much more than just missing hell and getting heaven. And I hope that you are starting to get why I always say that there really is no point for us to be talking about anything other than the gospel. When I started saying that several years ago, there were some who really didn't understand what I was talking about. And it sounds strange, but there really was some some opposition, some resistance within the church to me saying that from now on I was just going to be preaching the gospel. And one of the arguments against that was 
Well, I don't need to keep hearing the gospel. I'm already saved. I've been saved for a long time. Why do I need to hear the gospel again? But I hope that you can see now why the gospel isn't essential just for salvation, but it is just as essential for all of our Christian life, no matter how long you have been saved. There were some who thought that that meant I was only going to be preaching from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospels. But I hope you realize now that The whole Bible is run through with the gospel from Genesis to Revelation. It is what the whole Bible is about. The gospel is not just about what Jesus did, but I would say that even even more importantly, it's about what Jesus did means, what that means for us today. I mean, every Christian pretty much knows what Jesus did. He died on the cross for our sins. He was buried in a grave for three days, and then he rose from the dead. But I would say that not every Christian really understands what it all means, what that means for us now. And every time that we discover something new about what it means, that's what changes us. That's how we are changed. It's what causes us to grow, what causes us to be set free from bondage and to be healed of hurts. It's what enables us Uh, to handle every situation that life throws at us and enables us to see things from God's perspective. As a pastor, here's what I love most about the gospel. Number one, it means that I will never run out of sermon material. I mean, in this current series, we've been in for about three months and we are not even halfway through all the truths that I read on Easter And by the time that we are done with this, we won't even have come close to scratching the surface about what all it means to be in in Christ. There are so many nuggets of treasure yet to be discovered. So many, in fact, that God has given us all of eternity to discover what it all means because it's going to take that long for us to find all of it out. The other thing I like about the gospel as a pastor is that it does all the work that I used to try to do myself. What I mean by that is that I used to have this mentality that if people in the church are going to change, then it was up to me in order to bring that change about. For example, if I thought that gossip was becoming a problem in the church, then what I needed to do was come up with a really good message on gossip and show how bad it is, make people feel horrible for doing it, and guilt them into stopping it. If I thought giving was down, then what I needed to do was, was do uh, maybe a whole series on giving and, and make people believe that they're cursed if they don't and they're more blessed if they do. But whatever the change I saw needed to be in people, I thought it was up to me to really work that and twist those arms in order to get people to change. And I believe that that is one of the reasons why so many pastors get burnt out so fast on ministry. And it can be extremely frustrating if that change that you're trying to produce doesn't happen the way that you think it should. And so now I'm so thankful to God that he absolutely saved me from that and showed me something so absolutely liberating. In Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. 
In 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The Bible says that the gospel is the power of God. And so what God showed me in that was that all I needed to do was preach the gospel and then just trust that power to be at work and for it to be what causes people to change rather than me. And as I've been learning to do that, I've seen a whole lot more change in people than I did when I was trying to produce that myself. And the reason for that is because by focusing on people getting them to change their behavior, I was dealing with symptoms of a deeper heart issue. The gospel is the only thing that can change the heart. And once the heart is changed, then the behavior follows. So let's look at a few more nuggets here of treasure and allow these truths to hopefully change us before we get out of here. Um, What we're looking at today actually comes from two separate texts that make up one of the statements that I read on Easter. And what I read that Sunday was this. I said, in him you have been made complete, you are washed, you are purified. Being made complete comes from Colossians 2.10. So I want us to look at that before we come back here to, to 1 Corinthians 6. You don't need to turn there in your Bibles. It's going to be up on the screen. Colossians 2, 9 and 10 says this. In him, talking about Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. So if you're following along in your notes there in your bulletin, the first point is this. In Jesus you have been made complete. It's just reiterate something that I talked about two weeks ago when I said that God created every one of us to where in order for us to find complete satisfaction in this life, that can only be found in relationship with him. And we looked at how when we try to find satisfaction in anything other than Christ, and it just kicks off a chain of events that are absolutely destructive to our lives. We discover that those things don't satisfy, which leaves us frustrated and angry, which the Bible says hostile in mind, which then leads to us committing evil deeds. And so the sin that many people commit on the outside are just symptoms of them trying to find satisfaction in anything other than what they were created to find satisfaction in, which is Jesus. Colossians 2.10 reiterates that fact that satisfaction can only be found in him because it says we have been made complete. We've been made whole. The word that Paul actually used there in the Greek for complete is found all throughout the New Testament every time it talks about an Old Testament scripture being fulfilled. And so another way of saying it is that in Christ you have been fulfilled. Jesus is the only source of complete fulfillment in life. There is a mentality, a belief in our culture, I think ramped up and was made even more popular by the movie Jerry Maguire that basically asserts that none of us are fully complete until we find just the right person to complete us. Women everywhere swooned when Tom Cruise's character trying to get 
convince his wife why they shouldn't split up. At the apex, the climax of his argument, he looks at her and says, you complete me. And then she responded to that with an even sappier line. You had me at hello. And everyone was, oh, I just long for that. I mean, it touched a nerve in people because we all have this unsatisfied void in us that we are constantly trying to fill. And when people saw that movie, what they saw was the answer to it. Well, that's it. All I need to do is find the right person who will complete me, who will fill that void. And I would bet that that one lie probably led to so many divorces because people saw that. They saw that scene. They looked over at their spouse (laughs) and knew they weren't getting that there. And so they left to go find the one who could complete them. All of you married couples need to hear what I'm about to say, and all of you young people who hope to one day be married. If you could get this before you enter that marriage, it would go a long ways. And that is, if you look to your spouse to complete you, you are in for an incredible disappointment. They are incapable of doing that because God did not create them to complete you. Your spouse is there to compliment you, not complete you. And by compliment, I don't mean telling you your shoes are cute every day. (laughs) I'm talking about helping you, being that helpmate, that y'all strengthen one another, not complete one another. Marriage is not about two incomplete people coming together and being whole. It's about two people who are whole in Christ coming together and partnering together to glorify him. I even thought that this was so important that I made it a point in your notes, and that is you will never be satisfied in your marriage until you find satisfaction in Jesus. And those of you who are divorced or have lost your spouse in some way, you need to hear something too. Those of you who are divorced, Satan's probably been lying to you and telling you that because you are without a spouse, that somehow you are now incomplete. You've been weighed down with shame, thinking that everywhere you go, there is a scarlet letter attached to you that everybody sees, but instead of an A, it's a D, especially in the church. You can just feel this judgmental air around everyone. If you have had a spouse and you no longer have one now, Jesus wants you to know that you being whole does not depend on your marital status. Your wholeness, you being complete, is found in him and him only. Your spouse may have left, but he hasn't. And in him you are complete. Being complete in Christ also means that having everything you need for whatever he calls you to or calls you to do. This is a way that God usually works, and it just shows his sense of humor in ways. If he leads someone to do something, 
he usually picks someone that we would look at and go, well, they aren't qualified for that at all. There's no way they're going to be able to do that. I mean, he led Peter, who had absolutely no religious education whatsoever, to preach the gospel to the highly educated religious Jews. And he led Paul, who did have extensive religious education and would have been more qualified to reach the religious Jews, he called him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, on paper, those two should have been flip-flopped. It should have been Peter, who was more qualified to reach the Gentiles, and Paul, who was more qualified to reach the Jews. But that's how God works. He picks those who would seem not as qualified, not as whole, who would seem incomplete for the task because he is more glorified in that. In him, we are complete. All the credit for success in anything can only go to him. How can someone be successful in something that they aren't qualified for at all? Because Jesus makes them complete by strengthening their weaknesses and giving them everything they need for anything that he calls them to. So I'm telling you right now, if you feel like God is leading you to something and all you can see is your deficiencies and every reason why you shouldn't be able to do that, why you can't do that, and if you do that, you're going to fail, you're listening to the voice of Satan because if God is calling you to do it, in him you are complete. And he will strengthen you and give you everything you need in order to carry it out. I mean, those who know me the best know that the only reason that I'm still a pastor after six years and the walls of this church have not completely fallen down yet can only be because of God. It's only because of Him. Those who really know me and know my weaknesses and my past and my deficiencies and my incompleteness that would appear to be existing for this role know that there is nothing about me or in me that I can take credit for. And so that's why I always want to be as transparent with you as I can be and honest about my weaknesses and my failures because the more that you realize just what a mess I really am, then the more glorified God would be in any success this church has. Because you will know, well, we know it's not because of him. And it's not. And for you to know that if he can do this in me, he can do it in anybody. He can do it in anyone. In Christ, you are complete for anything that he leads you to. Okay, now let's go back to 1 Corinthians 6. I'm just going to read this again because I want this to really sink in. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. If you've been in church for very long, you have no doubt heard at least one, probably more sermons on this particular 
text. And if you're like me, then the majority of those sermons probably went something along the lines of the, the preacher going through each one of these things listed in verses 9 and 10, describing it in detail and how every one of us do these things and make everyone feel horrible about themselves and highlighting the fact here that it says that if you're doing this, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is one of the texts that some preachers like to use if they feel like they they need to get a real good response to an altar call. Not necessarily for salvation, but for people to come down and confess their sins and commit really hard to never doing it again. And the reason why this text is good for that is because every one of us are guilty of at least one of these things listed here. You know, many people, they, they look to an altar call response as the measure of how successful a sermon was, which I think is not a good idea to do, but, but a lot of people do, and so many preachers know this, and so they get caught up in that and feel like they've got to do whatever they can in order to get as many people to respond as possible so that everybody will think that it was a su- successful sermon. Guilt is a great motivator to get people to do that. I mean, you can stir up a whole lot of guilt if you take this text and make the focus primarily about verses 9 and 10. And the majority of sermons that I've heard on this text, that's exactly what the main focus was on. It was on verse 9 and 10. And I've even heard this text used to support the belief that a Christian can lose their salvation because if you do any of these things listed... And you don't confess that and ask for forgiveness, you're going to hell. Because it says right there, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. The problem with using this text that way is that this is not about behavior. It's about our identity. And there is a big difference between doing something... And doing something because that's who you are. For example, I would never call myself or identify myself as a bull rider. No one would ever call me that either. But I have ridden a bull in a rodeo before. Does the fact that I entered one open rodeo in college just because I wanted to to see what it felt like to ride a bull, does that automatically make me a bull rider? Am I a rodeo cowboy? No, I'm not because I don't live that lifestyle. It's just something that I did once. You wouldn't call me a mountain man. Even though I have been to the mountains several times, I've even trapped beaver, I've camped out in the open, and I've even worn a a fur hat. And so even though I've done several things that mountain men do, even more than once, no one would ever look at me and go, that's a mountain man right there. (laughs) No, I'm not. Why? Why? Because I don't live the lifestyle of a mountain man. You see where I'm going here? As a Christian, you cannot interpret this text right here correctly until you see that the main point of it is verse 11. Verse 11 is what Paul is trying to get us to get. 
And in it, Paul says, such were some of you. Now, do you think that because Paul said that, because he said, you were this, but you aren't anymore, that none of the Christians in the church in Corinth ever did any of these things again? Would it be safe to assume that none of them ever stole anything ever again? Or coveted something that someone else had? Or even got drunk? I don't believe it would be safe to assume that. And I'm sure that even after Paul said, such were some of you, that they did. In fact, Paul had to write them a whole other letter because they had gotten so far away from the pure gospel. But he never refers to them as anything other than who they are in Christ. That doesn't change. So Paul doesn't base who they are, their identity on their behavior. He bases it on their faith. He bases it not on particular actions or behaviors or or, or areas that they fail in, but on their new lifestyle in Christ. Paul's main point of this text is not verses 9 and 10. His main point to them and to us is verse 11. He's reminded them, he's reminding us of who we are in Christ. He's not trying to get them to change their behavior. He's trying to get them to change their perspective by reminding them of who they are now. Just like I'm not a cowboy or a mountain man, even though I may have done some of the things that they do, neither am I anything other than who I am in Christ, even though I may at times do things that don't reflect that. The weight of this text is not, you better quit doing the things in verses 9 and 10. The weight of this text is believe who you are in verse 11. Because if you believe who verse 11 says you are, the things in 9 and 10 will take care of themselves. If you know a Christian that's really struggling in any of these areas, the best way to get them to change is not to browbeat them and make them feel as horrible and as guilty as you can for it but it's to get them and constantly remind them of who they are in Christ. This is not who you are. This is who you are. Let's take a closer look at what it says about that. Again, he starts verse 11 off with, Such were some of you. Notice he doesn't say, you did these things. He didn't say, this is what you did. He said, this is who you were. He's talking about identity rather than behavior. Such were some of you, but, meaning that's not who you are anymore. Why? Well, the first thing, because you were washed. The next point in your notes, in Jesus you have been washed. You may have lived a lifestyle of sexual immorality. The fornicators he refers to in verse 9. But the dirtiness and disgust and shame of that life, that that lifestyle brings has been washed away by the blood of Jesus. You may have done the things they said you did, but you are not who they say you are. You are new in Christ. My kids are always asking if they can mow the yard, believe it or not. But it's only because they think it's fun to drive the zero-turn mower that we have. Uh, They don't get to as much as they would like, only because I think it's fun too. (laughs) 
and it relaxes me to just be able to mow my place. A few days ago, we got up at daylight to pick watermelons, and uh, by the time sunrise came, we were hot and sweaty and dirty. Um, the yard needed mowing, but um, I, was, I had to get up here to the church to go to work. And after we got done with the watermelons, everybody went inside, got showered off clean. And I asked one of the kids, I said, you want to mow the yard? I expected, yes, of course I do. But what I got instead was, oh, Daddy, I just took a shower. I just got clean. Even though they wanted to mow, had had a desire to do it, the thought of doing it now that they were clean was not as appealing to them. If I had asked them right after we got picking the melons before they got in the shower, they'd have jumped right on it. The same is true if we know what it means to be washed and clean in Christ. If you know you are clean, you don't want to go back to doing anything that's going to appear or make you feel dirty ever again. If you're already dirty, it's no big deal to continue to get even more dirty. You don't even notice it most of the time. If you believe that you are anything other than who you are in Christ, you are going to do things that look like anything other than who you are in Christ. If you identify yourself as an alcoholic, that's who you are, it's going to be very hard for you to stop drinking. If you identify yourself as a failure, I am a failure, you know what you're going to continue to do? Fail. We always live out what we believe about ourselves. If you believe that you are clean in Christ, it doesn't mean that you're never going to do anything dirty again. But what it does mean is that when you do, you immediately become aware of it. The contrast between perfectly clean and dirty, you notice it right away. You don't like it and you repent What you don't do is continue to live in it because you know that's not who you are. And it just doesn't feel right to continue to live that way. Okay, next thing. Not only does it say that you are washed, it also says you are sanctified. What that means is the next point. You are separated from the control of sin, set apart and dedicated to God. You are separated from sin and dedicated to God. To God. Again, when you believe that your life now serves a higher purpose, the things of the world don't seem near as appealing as they used to. And then it says that you are justified. Justified means made right with God. A good way of remembering what that means, you probably heard it before. That justified means that God sees me just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. And then the last thing, verse 11 says, this is probably my favorite part. It says, all these things were done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. To do something or to have something done in the name of someone means to have that done under that person's authority. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. 
The verse we read in Colossians said he is the head over all rule and all authority. Church, you have not been washed, made complete, set apart, and made right with God because I said you have. You have not been made complete, washed, set apart, and made right with God, not even because the Apostle Paul says you have. You have been made complete. You have been washed. You have been sanctified. You have been justified because Jesus, the one who has complete authority over all, said that you were. He declared that over you. And here's what that means. If Jesus, the one who is head over all rule and authority, the one who has been given all authority, not just in heaven, but also on earth, if he has declared that you are washed, that you are clean, then you can never be unclean again. If he says that you have been set apart, separated from the control of sin and set apart for his purposes, there is no more escaping that. If he says that you have been made right with God, there is no way for you not to be right with God. The last point in your notes, if Jesus said it's done, there is no way for it to be undone. You have a new identity in Christ. The more you believe, verse 11, the less you'll have to worry about the things in verses 9 and 10. God wants us to focus a lot more on who we are and on our identity than he does our behavior because our actions always reflect what we believe about ourselves. In Christ, you are complete. You are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified. Believe it. And the behavior will follow. Let's pray. God, I just get this sense right now that there are those in here just thinking, "Mm, sounds a little too good to be true. God, I know that there's been people in here who have been bound up and sitting under religious legalism for so long. It's, it's hard for them to really receive this truth of your grace and your mercy. And that it's not about what they do, that it's about what you did. It's about what you declare over them. It's not about how they act. It's about what you having been given all authority, has declared over them that in you they are made complete. In you they are clean. In you they are not what the world says about them. In you they are not what somebody when they were younger said about them and just stuck with them for the rest of their life. In you they are not 
what Satan or some other judgmental, self-righteous people have said because they've gotten a divorce or they've committed some other sin. Lord, I pray that as a, a good, gentle, loving father, those who have had their head down for so long, weighed down by so much guilt and shame and judgmentalism, Lord, that you would just reach down grab them by the chin and lift their face up to see you. And that they will begin to hear not me, but hear you. Remind them of who they are. Remind them of who you have made them. Lord, it's too big for us to grasp. We need your Holy Spirit to even be able to begin to comprehend this. And so, Lord, I'm asking you to do. Holy Spirit, would you come do what only you can do? Change us by your power. Make these truths move from our head to our heart, to where we're not just believing them, but we are living them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.